Wow, thank you guys. <clears throat> hey, just a heads up as we're getting started here, just so you will know, um, especially as the church uh, continues to grow. I mean, I know, like I said, days like today are a little lower than normal, but um, as the church continues to grow, make sure that you are getting involved in a smaller gathering group within the church or of the church. If it's not with the people from here, just make sure that that's, that's an important thing that you continue to do. Um, it, you're not experiencing church if you, if you come and, and just sit in the service and then, and then go. You're having a good church event, I hope, but, but you're not really experiencing what church is all about, which is um, the integration into your life of, uh, of the lives of other believers as we follow Christ together. Um, you're going to see this modeled, and today, all through chapter 1 of the John, you've seen this. When someone discovers Jesus, they don't go, oh, good, well, now, we can, now I know how to, I can go to some place on Sunday morning for a couple hours, and that's it. They immediately go to find people to experience this with them and to live this out with them, and so that's, that's important. So if you're not involved, we, around here we call them life groups. Different churches have all different names for them, and even our Sunday morning ones we call life groups so that you'll know you're not supposed to do two or three different things, like we're not trying to overwhelm your life, but... Um, make sure that you are aware of that, involved in that. And if you're in that life stage, by the way, so a lot of the ones during the week and other times, those are very much so kind of topic-oriented or teacher or whatever. Um, but, um, and they, they're, all, they're happening all week long, all during the week. But if, if you, the Sunday morning ones, many of them are kind of stage of life-oriented just to kind of make sure the bases are covered. Um, but we had one start just a couple of weeks ago for people who have um, targeting the age range or, or life stage of you, you've kind of graduated from having kids at home, so kind of an empty nester, um, but you haven't yet, like, not yet that retirement age from the career stage, and so um, they're meeting right now, and so if that's, if that's your age range and you're looking for a group of people to get involved with and get to know, um, that's going on now. But there are a whole bunch of others. Again, just practically, um, as the church continues to grow, and last week we saw kind of record numbers again, um, just reminded me, we need to make sure people know these are going on. You don't, um, the, the staff, if you're, if you're in the hospital or if you have a baby or if um, or if you have something to celebrate, something else, you're going to want a, a family of Christians to gather around you, and the staff coming and visiting is great, um, but we're no replacement for people who know you well and who are good friends with you, and, and so that's important. You want to, you want to keep that in mind. So, <clears throat> um, all right. Now, jumping in into the book of John, where we are, um, we are finishing up, Lord willing, chapter one today, and we're going to move through. We we will see, for example, as we finished up last week, uh, moving up to verse 42, um, starting in, uh, in verse 40, one of the two who heard Jesus speak and followed Jesus was Andrew. This was one of the disciples of John the Baptist, and he is now following Jesus, um, Simon Peter's brother. And he first found his own brother Simon and said to him, we have found the Messiah, which means Christ. He brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. Again, we talked about this all um, last week um, and built on that. And so you can go back and listen to those. They should be um, on the website under teaching. Almost everything we do here teaching, by the way, Wednesday nights, Sunday mornings, um, even select um, life group classes and stuff like that will show up on the teaching page and on the website. So you can go back and listen to those. But um, we see this excitement in, in Andrew and potentially in John to go and tell their family. And then um, I didn't do this first service and realized it was a mistake. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read this. I want to read the entirety <coughs> of, um, of John 1, 43 through 51. Don't worry, David, about trying to get that on the screen or whoever's up there. I can't even see. 
Um, it's dark up there. Um, I'm trying to get that on the screen, but let me, let me just read this. I want you to hear this. You can read along if you have it with you, um, which I highly recommend. You never know when I'm going to make something up up here, so it happens all the time. Um, and so uh, you can do that, or you can just listen. And here's what I want you to listen for. I want you to listen to how real this interaction sounds. How much like a real-life, actual interaction between two people who know each other or between people who know each other this sounds. All right, so the next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, follow me. Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, we have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathanael said to him, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, come and see. Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? And Jesus answered, Before Philip called you when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered, Rabbi, you're the son of God. You're the king of Israel. And Jesus answered him, Because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, you believe? You'll see greater things than these? They said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened. And the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Again, as we get to different stages of this, I wanted to read through this, the whole thing, so you would get a sense, the feel of the movement through it, rather than just taking it line by line, as which we're about to do. But to feel the, the normal nature of these interactions. These are just people, except for Jesus, who's a little more than that. These are just people. So what's interesting is through the first chapter of John, I don't think I had ever noticed before that essentially we've been getting a journal entry every day. That each day as we've gone through, Jesus has made, since John the Baptist made his declaration about being the Christ, we've walked through three and some would say four days like a journal. Maybe it even was. So in verse 43, we get the next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. Now this is no small feat. They've been staying for the last few days. Jesus, so apparently this is how this plays out. It's hard to know for sure, but it seems like this. That Jesus had gone down to where John the Baptist was baptizing people. Let me just tell you, for those of you who have not been to Israel, if you've not experienced this, one, I highly recommend it. If you can scrape up the pennies to do it, it's, it, it will bring certain things in Scripture to life for you. But, but here's the deal. Um, Israel is, probably isn't what you picture. Um, for the most part, what you have in Israel is, is rock. Um, and so there are huge areas where it's just nothing but rock, except for the areas that are stone and boulders. It's pretty much rock. It's, you go someplace else and there's a whole lot more rock, and then other places it's rock. And the way it's built, it's very hilly, up and down. And so when you, when you get to the, a place that's got water in it, instead of just, just this bare, white or black, reflective, awful, hot stone, which is everywhere... I mean, by the time of Jesus, that would have been in place. Any, any trees that were there, the Romans would have already cut down. Um, the Romans had a nasty habit. The only source of fuel they had was wood, so the Romans had to conquer the whole known world just to steal the trees. And they had taken trees from all over the world and to bring them back to the, city of, to, to the nation of Rome and to enjoy their steam baths and everything else they did. So, so this, it would have been just like this. Even if there were trees, there wouldn't have been much. And so what you have are the areas, then water flows through some part of it, and for about 50 feet, maybe 150 feet, on each side of the water is lush, almost jungle. And then, and then when the influence of the water ends, it just ends. I mean, there is a, almost a salt like you're, you've got nothing stone, stone, stone for 10 miles, 20 miles, 30 miles. Then you run into this lush 
trees and, and jungle almost, and you walk into it, and there will be water in the middle of it, a, a creek or, a, or in the case of the Jordan River, a river. Um, and everything by Texas standards is small there. Every, of everything except mountains, which we have none of, is small there. And so we, you see the Jordan River and you think the mighty rushing Jordan. And the first time you get to go and see the mighty rushing, Jor- rushing Jordan, you're going to go, man, I've seen creeks bigger than this thing. I mean, this is a, we would call this barely a creek in Texas. It is not a mighty rushing river of anything by our standards. And you go to the Sea of Galilee and you're going, a sea? I mean, it's about the size of Lake Palestine. It's, it's, this is a sea? Well, it is to them. And so, so when, we, when, you, when we experience this in our brain and you get to experience it, Galilee is not close to where they were. So they were near the Jordan River, not far from Jericho, which is just nasty. It's just, it's just hot and dry and low and, and stone bare rock everywhere. You're going to see a picture in a few minutes that will kind of show this to you. But and so they would have been down by the river, and then they come up by the, they come up to the, to the where this little, probably little, I don't know, community had been developed or built up around here. That's where Jesus had been the last few days. In fact, here's what I assume happened is, um, the beginning of John, where we see John the Baptist interacting with the Pharisees, took place simultaneously to Jesus being out in the wilderness, fasting for 40 days and being tempted by Satan. So Jesus would have come and been baptized. The Holy Spirit drove him out into the wilderness where he is. Wilderness, by the way, again, don't picture East Texas wilderness. Getting out in the wilderness meant probably out in the desert. Out in the, and again, it's not sand desert. That would be bad enough. It is bare stone desert. And so Jesus would have been sitting out on a rock somewhere out under the, probably the blazing heat for 40 days. Uh, maybe he'd found a tree to sit under part of the time, but it, it's, it's pretty rough. Satan would have shown up and tempted him. He comes back from, temp, from the temptation of Satan. He comes back, um, probably looks a little worse for the wear. Um, God has now taken care of him. And then, and then you get immediately he shows up and John the Baptist is going, look, look, look. There he is. He, he vanished for 40 days, but he's back. This is the one who I baptized. This is the one who the Holy Spirit fell on and abided with him. This is the one. So follow him, follow him. Follow. And Andrew does. And, and potentially, and then Peter does, and John does, and maybe, maybe James does, John's brother. And so at that point, you've got about those, and they decide, and Jesus goes, you know what, I'm heading to Galilee. And the presumption is maybe they follow him back to Galilee. They're from there anyway. But this is a long walk, and he does it in a day. These people were used to this. They, they were rough people of the dirt. They walked everywhere, 10 miles, 20 miles, 30 miles in a day. And so they would cover this ground and they would show up there. So they show up back in Galilee, back where it's a little more lush. It's a little more nice by Israel standards um, because you've got this sea there, this freshwater sea. Um, and so this would have taken place. All this was going on back in Galilee. Jesus continues his work of gathering followers. This is brand new in his ministry. He's got maybe four right now or whatever. Um, this evangelism seems almost automatic, not only for him, but for those who he leads Their lives are changed instantly. They instantaneously want to bring other people. They want to get others involved. So he finds Philip, he says. He gets to to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, follow me. Now, again, I don't want to build too much on this, but this this is kind of every, this is the universal calling for all of humanity. Jesus Christ saying, follow me. We get the voca, vocation, voca coming from voice. We get the idea of voca, vocation and calling. Um, comes from the idea of a specific calling that maybe you have placed on you, that you have a message or a, 
or a mission or something you're supposed to go do or some place you're supposed to go do it, and that's, that's a calling. Too often, I think sometimes in evangelical churches and especially Baptist churches, we've narrowed this idea of calls. That people say like, well, I've been called to ministry. Like, let me tell you something. You've been called to ministry. It has nothing to do with who's paying you. You have been called to ministry. I think it's even silly language that we use that. When people ask me, like, were you called to this church? I'm like, yeah, the, the head of the uh, search committee gave me a call and said, hey, will you come Sunday and preach? And then we're going to vote. And then the vote is going to be in view of a call. And we're going to call you to come work here. God led me here, I think, but, but I didn't have some voice or bolt from heaven telling me, like, this church is the one. It would have been very confusing if he'd said South Spring because it didn't exist anyway at that time. So this is the idea that we have this image of, like, a call is supposed to look just like this is, is probably just error. It's very different all throughout Scripture. In this case, this is Jesus himself walking up to Philip and saying, follow me. So Philip does what everybody else seems to do. Now, just to give you a tiny heads up, we'll talk a little more about Philip when we get to him in John 6. Um, I'll again get a little more about him. But Philip, his, his name is a combination of philos, meaning brotherly love, and hippo, which means horse. But you didn't know that. And then what you saw, first time you saw a hippo, you thought, oh, a horse, right? A water horse. That's, they're just like that. Um, anyway, but his name means... For his, his name literally means a friend of horses. So Philip the horse whisperer, Jesus comes to him and calls him. He's only mentioned in lists in other gospels, but here we get a little more detail. Like Andrew, he has someone in mind immediately. He's immediately going to go to tell somebody else that he's found Jesus. Again, we talked about that last week. It feels very personal. It's not someone else pointed out Jesus to me. It's not Jesus found me. It's I found him, which I think is just a beautiful preaching there's something so preachable in that, that we all think we found Jesus, right? That's a, any of you ever gone on a mission trip and expecting to bring Jesus someplace? And you get there and it turns out he beat you there. When I went to Egypt, I got invited to go to Egypt and I was like, I'm going to go here. I can't wait to share with these Egyptians Jesus. Now, first of all, those of you who are a little more biblically knowledgeable, you already can see the great irony in me thinking I'm going to take Jesus to Egypt because after all, he went there. Remember when he was a baby, they took him to Egypt. He's, he's actually been, not even just someone took the gospel there. Jesus had been there. They had places where they claimed he had stood. I, I don't buy that, but they, that's, that was not like a newness. So you get there, you discover Jesus beat you there, and he's already at work there in some way, in, some, in, the, in the hearts of people. A lot of times that's the case. Not, maybe not always, but here you have, so Philip, um, he, he's, he's going to immediately have someone in mind. Just so you know, Philip um, who's also called Bartholomew, probably, almost certainly he's called Bartholomew. Anybody know why it would make sense um, to call, excuse me, Nathaniel. I'm going to hold off on that. That's Nathaniel. Getting ahead of myself. Jumped ahead of my notes. Now, um, back to Philip. Philip was probably crucified upside down. Um, we don't know for sure, but in a, in a city that's now modern Turkey, he was arrested um, and either beheaded or crucified upside down. There's different um, stories about that, but that's, that's significant. Um, I'll come back to that in a minute. So here we go. Now, Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael. Notice how instantaneous that is. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote. It's Jesus of Nazareth. Now let me just stop there. 
Um, so again, keep in mind, we're gonna, I'm going to point something out to you. If I save the right amount of time, that should have some good emphasis on it. But none of these people were looking for God. They didn't think this Messiah guy was going to be divine. They weren't looking for God on earth. That wasn't part of their thinking. They're looking for a Messiah, someone to come rescue them, to come save them. To come rescue them from the Romans, at least. To come rescue them from the evil that had infected their land. To come and bring about a spiritual and political awakening. That's what they were looking for. And so Philip is incredibly excited about Jesus. They have found Jesus. They have found the guy who's coming to do this. He's the Messiah. Remember, um, Andrew and the other disciples spent a day or more with him, getting to know him. They've now gotten Peter involved. And Peter's now gotten a track. By the way, they walked. Remember, they walked from where they were on the Jordan all the way to Galilee. That's a long time to walk and talk. They didn't have earbuds in. They weren't on their phone the whole time. They would have talked the entire time walking. Hours and hours and hours of walking across rugged land, talking to each other. This, by the way, is the best discipleship format for men, if I can take a second. Um, if you want to disciple men, I'm going to recommend against sitting in chairs next to each other with your hands on each other's knees, talking, looking at each other's eyes. Like That's not super comfortable for men most of the time. Get up and walk and move and do something and, and engage with each other. We often talk about how um, men prefer to really communicate kind of um, parallel, not perpendicular. And so it's really, you'll, you'll sometimes see if somebody comes out to, to talk with me, we'll go out and we'll walk around. We've got some great walking trails and that kind of stuff here. So um, that's always a good, that's a good thing to have in mind. So they're walking. So these guys would have now had a day or two or three full days of conversation with him which is something that can take most of us a year to get with somebody else, to get that many hours with them. So they have good reason to believe in this. Nathaniel, I mean, uh, Philip goes to him. <clears throat> we found him. But look at who Philip thinks Jesus is. He is the Messiah. They're excited. He's the, he's the prof fulfillment of the prophecy of Moses and the law and the prophets. He gets this. But he doesn't fully get it. Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. He only understands Jesus as the son of Joseph. He doesn't see him as the son of God. This is the son of Joseph, which is, by the way, and he's, not, he's excited about this. We found him. We found the Messiah, but he doesn't fully get who he is. This is Philip's testimony. This is his witness. We found him, the one that the, that the prophesied, has been prophesied by all these people, but Philip doesn't fully get the prophecies. He's leaving some of them out. The tough ones, the troubled ones, apparently in his mind. So Jesus, the son of Nazareth, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph, and Nathanael says to him, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? This is a great line. And Philip said to him, Well, come and see. This passage, when you interact with it, it feels very real. This is humans talking to each other very clearly. So Nathanael means God has given. His name means God has given. He's the patron saint of smart Alex. I don't know if that's literally true. It may, it may be, but. He's the patron saint of sarcastic people. Um, so some of you be excited about that. This is the one who is also sometimes called Bartholomew, probably. Now, how does that make sense? You go, that's, that's tough. So his name is Nathaniel in some books, and it's, and it's Bartholomew in others. Why would that make sense with your understanding of the Jewish, um, the Jewish naming and, and all that kind of stuff? What does Bar mean? Son of, right? And so here you have... Nathaniel, who apparently his whole name would have been Daniel, Bar, and we would say Tholomew in that language, Tamai, probably. 
This is, this is, it's declaring who he is. He's Nathaniel, the son of Tamai. And especially if Tamai was famous, it might have been that they would often have called him that. That might have been how he was known better, was as a son of. We have a lot of those in the Bible. Blind Bartimaeus is one. Um, the man who becomes known as the son of encouragement, um, Barnabas. These are, these are all names that have that uh, connected to it. So that, that's, that's not a problem. In fact, that makes total sense <clears throat> if that's who it is. But his, the message he's getting is to come meet Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Philip thought he was the Messiah, but he wasn't thinking in terms of God in the flesh. Now the phrase, can anything good come out of Nazareth? That's a great, great line. You may be thinking like Arkansas. Like, could, really, could anything good... And so I looked it up, and the list is short. Johnny Cash is from Arkansas. That's, that's kind of it. I mean, there's not much more. Now, here's what's, here's what's fun about that. What's fun about that is I'm from Nacogdoches. And, and yes, we had kind of a famous soccer player um, come out of Nacogdoches a, a couple of decades ago. But, but beyond that, I mean, that's where I'm from. There's, there's nobody famous. Um, you have to be kind of a narrow population to even know about the soccer player. There's no one famous. Um, not, not really many anybody. Uh, maybe you come from a town like that. Um, so, I'm like, for example, th- when you're thinking of Nacogdoches, have you ever heard of Mark Twain? He's not from Nacogdoches. <laughs> Name somebody famous, I guarantee you. They're not from Nacogdoches. So this is the idea of, of what you're dealing with with this. this you've got like, like Nazareth. No one's from Nazareth. <clears throat> you don't, it's, messiahs don't come from Nazareth. What are you talking? So one, he's being kind of funny about it. He's, one, he's, he's kind of being a joke. Apparently, this is a little bit of a prejudice about this. It may even be, he's from Bethsaida. It may even be that Bethsaida and Nazareth, you know, they're like their peewee football leagues play each other or something. There's a little bit of competition going on there. So there could be a little bit of that. Regardless, that's his response. Can any good come out of Nazareth? And Philip's answer is, well, come see. Again, two buddies talking about something they've got going on. (coughs) So Nathaniel does go and see, which again strikes me as significant. (coughs) Sorry. (coughs) So he does go see. This is a great, another little possible teachable example for us. One, if you're a not a believer, and, or you know someone who isn't a believer, like this is a good example of someone who, is, who doubts, who doesn't believe, who's got prejudices in mind, and yet when he gets invited, he goes. In my mind, there's two teachable things about that. One is to an audience who probably by definition isn't here. And that's people who don't believe or don't understand or have prejudice against Christianity or against faith or against religion or whatever. And so they have a natural tendency not to go. When, when the, the only reason they're being invited to something is for their best interest. So if you are one of those people, let me encourage you, continue to come. Continue to go to the places your Christian friends ask and invite you to. They're not doing that because they get some kind of brownie points. That's not how this works. This isn't VBS where you get an extra cookie if you invite a friend every day. They're just inviting you because they love you. And they think this will help you. This will be good for you. So if your spouse drags you here week after week, stop making them drag you and just come. This is a a great picture. Nathaniel gets to meet Jesus because he's willing to come. It's a great touch. Now, I will tell you this also. So this new population... Um, you may have heard this, and I've said it from the pulpit before, but the, the, the fact that the fastest growing religious population in the United States right now are the nuns. That is those people who, when you ask them, what is your religious affiliation, they say, none. <clears throat> but here's what's wild about them. What's wild about them is a huge percentage of them, when asked, 
if you were invited to go to a church service, would you go? The huge majority of them say they would. So what that tells me is, part of why they aren't is because no one's asking. Now, I know that part of why you may not be asking is because you've been in church a long time and you know how traumatizing church can be. In fact, one of my hopes is that, is that in the next semester, maybe next fall, is that we would have a life group created for people who have had traumatic experiences in churches. Um, it's really, really common. Um, there, there are whole therapeutic ministries in the United States that are for people, and some of them are just for church staff who have been burned in the name of church. So that can certainly happen. <clears throat> I know we have a, lot of po- a large population here of people who come here who have been traumatized and hurt in other churches. So, that being the case, um, we, want you to be, we want you to know that you are welcome, and we want to have that opportunity there. So, <laughs> I'm, I'm actually good. I got water up here. Thank you, Alan. <clears throat> They're hearing me. People are trying to take care of me. I appreciate it. I've got some right here, though. Um, uh, so, here you have this, in this situation, you need to be inviting people. I mean, it's that simple. When was the last time you invited someone to church? Now, listen, it's better to invite them to your home and have chips and salsa and get to know them and, uh, and, and, and learn a little bit about them. But the truth is, very few people are offended at being invited to things. Have you ever found that to be the case for you? Do you get really deeply offended when people invite you to be a part of something, even if you can't go? Typically, we get offended when they don't invite us, right? Even if we don't want to go or can't go or whatever, we're still happy for them to ask. That's a, that's a good rule. Um, if there's something about this church in particular that you're like, yeah, I don't want to invite people though because of this, okay, then you need to become a part of changing that, of whatever that is, so that this is a place where you know you can invite people. Great example here, <clears throat> whether it's Philip or Andrew or John or Jesus who invites people, who goes to them. And by the way, if you're not inviting people to be discipled by you, we need to do that. Jesus starts that conversation. Hey, you know what? I'd love to get some time with you. Follow me. Again, people are, you think people will be offended by that. They just aren't, my experience. Okay, so 47. So Nathaniel and Andrew are headed towards Jesus. Jesus is sitting probably at least with his four friends that he's made in, there in Galilee. And he saw Nathaniel coming toward him and said, Behold an Israelite indeed in whom there is no deceit. Now there's a couple of statements here that are a little odd and a little hard to follow. No one knows for sure what's being talked about here. But Nathan apparently overhears, I'm going to start calling him Nathan because it's easier than Nathaniel. But Nathan overhears him and and he's going to respond to this. But what is Jesus saying with this? An Israelite indeed in whom there's no deceit. Because here you have him saying not just an Israelite by descent and not following the pattern of his forefathers. Because you see the, the people who founded Israel, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob... And his sons are known in particular for one sin. What is the sin that generation after generation they committed? Deceit. This was a family full of liars. Now, they may not have lied that often, but the, the times they do, we hear about it. But Jacob in particular, man, this was just his, his stock of trade. They love to lie about stuff. Abraham's the most honest, and he just kind of is deceitful a, few time, a couple times, but... But then you get, you get down into Jacob's sons. Oh my gosh, they're infected by it. So here you have Jesus kind of making an interesting reference. It's like he's referencing Jacob as much as he is the people of Israel. Behold, a son of Israel, which is what Jacob's name was changed to, a son of Israel who's a son 
of, his, of the character that I want for my people, in whom there's no deceit. That's kind of interesting. Um, the patriarchs were known for that, and yet, I don't know. It also may be that Jesus is making a little bit of a jibe here, just a tiny little like, in whom there is no deceit, in whom there is no tact, maybe. Who says things like, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Like, it may be that Jesus is already hinting at, I heard that conversation. Don't know. Regardless, it seems to be taken as a compliment. It's hard to tell. But Nathaniel immediately says, to, which is what you would expect. Nathaniel says, do you know me? Wait, do we know each other? How would you know to say anything about my character at all? Do we, how do you know me? And Jesus answered in this incredibly cryptic little response. Um, something happens here that we miss. We don't have the whole story here. We'll talk about that. Before Philip called you, Jesus says. When you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathaniel's response is off the charts. Nathaniel answers him, Rabbi, you're the son of God. You're the king of Israel. What? This seems like an extreme response to someone who was warned, hey, we're going to go meet the son of Joseph. And now you have, after one little statement, Nathaniel going, Rabbi, teacher, master, you're the son of God. We're going to talk about that. Maybe a reference to divinity, but maybe not. The, the people of Israel use that terminology sometimes in a divine kind of way, but often not. Um, you're the king of Israel. I mean, this is, the one that's going to, this is one of the ones that's going to stick. That's going to turn up on Jesus' cross, the king of the Jews. And all from one statement. So, so historians and commentary writers have tried to figure out what happens here. And, and no one really knows for sure. There's, so here's some thoughts. So when I went on my sabbatical, I spent 60 hours cut off from everything. Um, no books. I didn't even have a Bible. Just a, just a journal. No phone. No computer. No nothing. And I was uh, up in the hills outside of California, in California outside of Sonoma, <clears throat> where it's supposed to be nice and cool, all the, you know, the grapevine weather and all that kind of stuff. So, of course, while I was there, they had a heat wave. Um, and one day it got up like 100 degrees. There's no AC. No one has AC or anything up there. And this place certainly didn't. The Hermitage didn't. And so I needed to find a place to sit. Do you, do you have that picture? So there was a spot on the ground. So the, like everything in that part of California, it's pretty much bare. But there was one spot where there was a nice fir tree and a little pond. And so that's where I would sit, sometimes for hours on end, because it was the coolest spot on the whole property. And I would sit there and think and pray and write and that, that kind of stuff. That's what you do under a setting like that. Well, in Israel, I've already described what Israel looks like. Here's what fig trees can look like in Israel. So you have these big, beautiful, um, these big, broad leaves and that kind of stuff. Look at the, the land around, by the way. That's what it looks like. And so here you have this beautiful tree that's growing right there in the, in the, on the wreckage of an ancient city. But you can see why people would sit there. I mean, it would have been nice shade, not, even if there's not fruit. And so people, this is the kind of place in Israel where people go to think or pray or study. And sometimes even teachers and prophets would gather there for other people to come to. So here you have, um, apparently, at some point, maybe the day before when Philip came to him, he was sitting under the fig tree already. But at some point in Nathaniel's life, whether it was the day before or not, what if this, what if Nathaniel was sitting under a fig tree praying for the Messiah? Asking for guidance. Asking the Lord to speak to him or maybe deal with his personal, private, hidden sins. Something special happened for Nathaniel under a fig tree. It's not just Jesus showing off that the Holy Spirit had revealed some really cool bit of information. 
but more that something special had happened in Nathaniel's heart under this fig tree as he prayed, as he sought God's leadership. And Jesus says, oh yeah, before Philip told you about me, I already knew about you. I saw you under the fig tree. By the way, there's one legend from Syria that says that Nathanael was born in Bethlehem and that he was born about the same time as Jesus. And so that when Herod's soldiers came to kill all the children in Bethlehem, that, that Nathanael's mother hid him under a fig tree to protect him from the soldiers of Herod. And that Nathanael had been raised his whole life being told this story, how God had preserved him when all the other children had died. Again, it's legend. It's not in the Bible. But something spectacular had happened in Nathanael's life. We don't need to know what it is. It's none of our business. Maybe Nathaniel could teach a seminar in heaven about it someday and we can learn. But we don't need to know. What we need to know is that in this key moment, Jesus already had seen it. He had already seen Nathaniel there. I saw you there. The Holy Spirit revealed you to me. I already know you. Again, this whole, we found Jesus. Okay, not exactly. He found you. Is the picture here. It's a beautiful picture of of Jesus knowing Nathaniel intimately and starting off, oh, I know him so well, I've been watching this one for a while. It's a really neat picture. Nathaniel answered him, Rabbi, you're the Son of God, the King of Israel. We'll see a similar thing. We studied John 4 at the woman at the well. Jesus knows things he cannot possibly know. And what's the explanation? Nathaniel is convinced. In this situation, he's not just the son of Joseph, he's the son of God. Now again, that can be a reference to being a good Jew. You know, the Jewish people sometimes call each other the sons of God. Um, the king of Israel. Maybe he'd been a student of John the Baptist as well and heard his teaching. Only God could know this kind of thing though. So here we have this series of witnesses. Are you convinced yet? You've got John the Baptist's witness. You've got Peter's witness. You've got Andrew's witness. You've got another disciple, probably John. You've got the witness of Philip and now the witness of Nathaniel. Can you see why many people throughout history have just from studying the book of John been convinced that Jesus was the Christ, that he is the Savior? That's, sometimes people have, with no other information other than this book, been convinced. You're being called to make a decision at the end of chapter 1 already. We're only in chapter 1. And already you're being required to either call six men liars or people who testify to the truth. That's significant. That's quite a call. You don't know these men well enough, and yet you're going to have to call them liars or accept what they say. Now, Jesus is about to finally testify about himself. And Jesus is going to leave no, no question in the minds of the Jewish audience as to what he's claiming here. So Jesus answered him, because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, you believe? Jesus is like saying, that's, that's all it took? Just that's enough to convince you? This is a man who knows the truth. This is a man in whom there is no deceit. He hears the truth and he knows it instantly. Nathaniel jumps on board. That's what it took? Man, I tell you. Truly, truly. Get used to that, by the way. That pattern, that phrase. Jesus saying, I'm telling you the truth. I'm telling you the truth. Verily, verily. This is the way it is. It's the way it is. He's going to say that a lot in John. Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened. You will see the angels of God ascending and descending. Now this... Again, who is this a reference to? Who saw this? Jacob did with his ladder at Bethel, right? I think it's at Bethel when he saw this. But that's a, or Peniel. But anyway, the up and down, the, the angels moving up and moving down. 
on the ladder. But now Jesus gives them a place. He's going, you're going to see them ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Now, we go because we don't under, when we're not, because we're not that great a Jewish audience all the time, we go, Nathaniel said he was the Son of God. That must mean he's, he's, he's divine. The Jewish audience wouldn't necessarily jump to that. But when you say Son of Man, ironically, that is a reference to divinity. It is a reference to something beyond just a man. This is connected to numerous um, prophecies in Daniel. And the prophecies in Daniel, one of the things Daniel sees is they see, he sees the Ancient of Days. And the Ancient of Days calls a special one to him and bestows an eternal kingdom on that one. He's called the Son of Man. That's his title. And though there was, there was great debate about how this would be lived out, is this a, a real thing or not, Jesus is now claiming for himself a title that every member in that Jewish audience would have said, whoa, whoa, you are claiming something here that we didn't know was going to be real, that we thought maybe it was just a concept. We didn't know. So you're saying this is found in you when Jesus says, no, you'll see the angels ascending on descending on the Son of Man himself. In Daniel, one of them, here's just one of the passages. Um, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the cloud of heaven, there came one like the Son of Man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him, and to him was given dominion and glory and kingdom, and all people, nations, languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed." Just catch, here you have one standing in the presence of the Ancient of Days, Yahweh Himself, I am Jehovah, the King of Kings and Lord of Lords, and in the presence of that God is given glory and dominion. Sorry, that can only be God. No one else is allowed to have glory and dominion in the presence of Almighty God. It's kind of like what you see in Revelation. It's one of those great little moments of Revelation when, you, when, you, when something kind of jumps out at you, at least it does me, when it says, and I saw there in the midst of the throne... A little lamb as though slain. Let me just tell you how many people get to sit on that throne. On the throne. The throne of God and the little lamb is sitting on the throne. If you have any doubt as to, whether the, the, as to the divinity of Jesus Christ, in that passage it's made absolutely clear. You don't, you don't sit in that chair and try to prop your feet up unless you're God. One guy tried it. He got cast out of heaven. He'll be tried for eternity. That's, that's who we're dealing with here. This is Jesus Christ. He's declaring himself here at the end of chapter 1, God. And you're stuck with now a seventh person who either is a liar or Jesus Christ is the Lamb of God, the Messiah, which is the Christ, the Rabbi, Teacher, Master, the Son of God, the King of Israel, the Son of Man, or they're all liars. People were brought to him by a friend. This is in chapter 1. He's been, people have been brought to him by a friend, brought to him by a family member, found directly by him, or directed to him by a teacher. If you have in view and in mind Jesus Christ of Nazareth, the Son of God, the Son of Man, there's not a wrong way to meet him. Whether you were brought here by family or brought here by Jesus Christ himself or whether God led you here or whether your family members or friends brought you, the truth is you have the opportunity to meet him. 
That's not just here, that's anywhere. So I really want to encourage us to be, one, living this out as a church, and for those who don't know him this way. I mean, this should revolutionize us. This changes the way we work, and it changes the way we relate to our family, and it changes the way we do everything. This, this, is, this changes everything, this Jesus character. So here we have at the end of chapter 1, as, as loud a metal gauntlet thrown down as possibly could be thrown down. We have a decision to make. So I want to pray over you that whatever, and, and this is not just for those who have not met Jesus, who have not put their faith in him. This is for all of us that we would live this out. Let me pray. Father, what, a, um, what an awesome chapter in your word. Um, thank you that we have the luxury of these weeks to look at it and to dig into it and to study it. Or that we have been introduced once again. For some of us, we've been introduced since while we were in the womb to Jesus. But for some people, maybe not so much. And even for those of us who have met him long ago, Lord, you, you still have given us the opportunity to be introduced to him again through the eyes of of these men, through the eyes of John the Baptist and Andrew and Peter and John and Philip, Nathaniel, and through Jesus' own eyes, much less through the Holy Spirit, through your own voice declaring him your son in whom you are well pleased. Father, I pray that, that we would engage with the truth of that, however our, li our lives call for it. Um, each of our lives need to be impacted more by the truth of your Son. So whether that's the fear in our life that we can cast on him, or the cares that we can cast on him, or the anxieties, or the hopes, or the ambitions, or, or whatever they are, Lord, that we can cast them on your Son. Um, God, we may still have those things, those doubts and fears and whatever they are, or the encouragements, or our own ambitions, or whatever in our hearts. At the same time, Lord, we submit them all to you. We do that as a church. I pray we could do that as individuals. Your son, the only one, the lamb of God, your lamb, who was chosen before the creation of time been revealed to us now for our sake, who takes away the sin of the world. Thank you for this great and mighty gift in your son's, that very lamb's holy name, we pray it. Amen.